If you, if you happen to be new here this morning, we, we want to extend just a special welcome to you. We're so grateful that you chose to come and to be a part of our church uh, body this morning. We're, we're grateful for that. If, if you're looking for a church home, we, we certainly hope you'll find one here. But if you don't find one here, if, if, if you don't feel God leading you to this church, we want to encourage you to check out some of the great churches that are in this community. There's a, there's a, there's a number of fantastic fellowships that exist within Sheridan. We are blessed in that. And it's really our heart that you find a church home, that you plug in, and that you begin to serve there. A um, couple thoughts here before we get started. One is this. I'm just telling you guys. Pam is not going to leave you alone until this whole stage is stacked up with, with Operation Christmas Child boxes. So just know that. So, so, the, so the, the quicker we can stack those all up, you know, like a thousand or something, then um, we'll, we'll be let off the hook a little bit by Pam. But uh, until then, just plan on Operation Christmas Child, which is an awesome ministry. I love it. Um, we, we got to one time host a... a, a, a young lady who had received an Operation Christmas Child box and had come to know Jesus because of that. And she lived in the, in the Middle East, and um, it was the only gift that she ever received. And it was just a powerful, powerful testimony about that, um, about that ministry. Um, the other thing, too, I I'm, I'm, apologize I didn't get this in the announcements, but I just want to make known something. There is a museum called the Enduring Word that has been in Sheridan a few times, Bethesda. It's a Bethesda Worship Center. They just host it, but it's a traveling museum about the Bible. And I, I want to encourage you, go, go, go check it out. It is so cool. Thursday night, he's going to be doing a presentation, a community presentation at 6.30 p.m. You can usually get this guy to tell you some things about it, but they have, I mean, they have like an authentic King James Bible from 1611, and they'll let you touch it. I mean, at least they used to, but it was crazy. I couldn't believe that they would actually let you touch it. They have an actual Martyr's Bible, a Gutenberg Press. They have all of these different things, and, and they have all kinds of, you know, goat skin stuff and so just cool stuff. You got to go see it because uh, it, it's really awesome. So check out the Enduring Word Museum. Um, there is a flyer on the table out here about it, and we'll try to get something sent out in the email as well. But really try to take some time and don't miss that. It's, it's way worth seeing. So this morning, um, we're just calling this under authority. Um, if you are new here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark since January. Um, and uh, we are in chapter 11, verse 27 this morning. So turn your Bible on, open your Bible, grab a Bible from the chair in front of you if you don't have one. Open it up to Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and, and we're going to get going here this morning on this. All right, I'll read through this, and then we'll, we'll come back, and we'll revisit it. We'll look through this. Uh, verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? 
But shall we say, from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. God's word. So, the issue here is authority. That is what we're talking about is authority here. And, and you know, God is the creator. And if God is the creator, then he's the authority. If he made all of this, if he created you and I, then we are ultimately accountable to this God who's the maker of all things. You see, it's him who sets the rules. And he lays out means and, and prescriptions for authority throughout all of life. As a matter of fact, the universe itself is governed by law. God has set law over the universe and the state of the universe and, and, and the goings on and how the universe even operates. He's done that within family. He's done that within church. He's done that within government as well. And Jesus here is met by a commission basically from the Sanhedrin. And these, prob these are the guys that should meet and come to ask questions about what's going on. It says that there's a representative there from the, <coughs> from, from the priests, from the teachers of the law, and from the elders. And so this is a commission that's went. And remember last week, if you remember, we, 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 we talked through and we went through Jesus' cleansing of the temple where he basically just went in and, and, and ran everybody out. And we talked about how what was going on was that, was that they, were, they, were, uh, they were filling up the court of the Gentiles, the place where it was supposed to be accessible to all people, that everyone could come into the temple, they could draw near to, to God there. And they were making it difficult for people who were poor, they were overcharging, they were, they were um, remember you had to change money from whatever money system you had into a shekel because that was the acceptable currency for the temple. And what that had happened was that corruption had come into the temple and the operations of the temple. And those who were in authority, who were supposed to be keeping this kind of in a good spot, had become corrupted themselves. And so 
it was going on this way. So, so the people that are meeting Jesus at this point are probably the people that actually should meet him. They are the people that have the authority to meet with him and begin to talk and question through these things. But the problem with them is that they're not coming asking the right questions or for the right, with the right motives. They're coming because they see Jesus as a threat to their authority. They don't see him as, a, as, a, uh, as an advocate. They see him as an adversary. They've shifted in their thinking, and they see him as fundamentally putting in danger their authority and what they have going on. <clears throat> when they look at Jesus, they're asking him this. They're saying, who, who gave you this authority? Where did you get this from? Like, like, who did you sit under? Like, we've sat under all the right teachers. We've memorized all of this scripture. We've done all of the right things, and we went through all of the right processes and stuff, and you came out of a carpenter shop. Where do you think you get this authority from? Where, where is it? How come it is that, that you haven't sat under these things, and you haven't went through all of these steps in these ways that we have? You don't have acceptable credentials, Jesus, is what they're saying. It's kind of an interesting thing. There's a lot of churches that are out there today that actually wouldn't hire Jesus as a pastor because they would say he doesn't have acceptable credentials. It's true. Not that there's anything wrong with, with learning or anything like that, but you see, they, uh, they, they fundamentally were missing what the scripture was teaching and where the scripture was going and who Jesus was, who the very one that they're standing in the very... Uh, in, in the very presence of all authority. And they're asking him, where do you get authority from? See, we don't like authority. This is a reality of you and me, right? We're rebellious by our very nature. And we have to begin to look at ourselves and our lives and how we operate through that lens of of two things, really recognizing the rebellion that lives inside of us and the rebellion that lives in the world that is opposed to the things of God. The rebellion that lives inside of us is outlined very well in chapter three of, of Genesis. When it talks about the fall, the fall of mankind and, and what went on there and what kind of things happened at that point. You see, it says that there was a tempter or a deceiver that came in, this serpent that came into the garden and, and begin to challenge Adam and Eve and, and, and led a very leading kind of a conversation that began to cast doubt on the integrity, the character, and the authority of God. It began to, to kind of put God in kind of a shadowy light, like, did, did God really say, like, that you can't eat of any fruit of the tree in this garden? Like, like, that seems so unreasonable, but you see, when, when you have a conversation that's meant to lead in a certain direction and have a certain outcome, it, it begins to be funneled into those ways, and, and, and truth is, begins to be distorted in that way. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of any? And then Eve answers and says, well, you know, we, we can, just not the tree that's in the center of the garden, right? And then Satan says, well, oh, oh, yeah, well... God knows, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, that your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, determining what's good and what's wrong. That's really what the Hebrew means there. It doesn't mean you'll just know what good and evil is. It means you will determine for yourself what good and evil is. 
You won't need God anymore because you can sit in the position of God. You can usurp the authority of God and have it for yourself. And the reality of the character of God is that he's just trying to keep good things from you. This is the nature of the deception that we live under. And this rebellion that goes really deep inside of us is this idea that we really want to just kind of call our own shots. We want want to just say it's about how we would have it to be, right? How we see it, what our truth is. But you see, that's not the very nature of truth. truth. Truth doesn't operate like that. Truth doesn't operate by our whims or by our feelings. And God is the authority over every aspect of our lives, and he's given us direction within that. He's given us direction within our work, our sex life, marriage, finances, what we live for, who we are, all of these things. God, the authority, has begun to, 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 to lay out for us what life looks like, and then for us, we've got to determine whether we're in agreement with that or if we're in rebellion with that. And we've got to really look at that, and we've got to look at that from, from a really honest perspective. Because we just don't like authority. We want to push back against authority. We don't want to allow God's authority to reign in and through us. If you look at, at, at Psalm 2, what you'll see is a major contrast from Psalm 1. And, and Psalm 2 begins to lay out for us the rebellion of the world around us. Psalm 1 talks about this. It says, you know, it, it, it says, blessed is the man who does not walk in, the, or walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. And then it contrasts, and it says, but the wicked are not so. For they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And it it begins to, to make this stark contrast between those who are obedient to the word of God and those who are in rebellion to the word of God. It goes on and it says that, therefore, the the wicked, they will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. And then Psalm 2 is this contrast to that too. And it says this, it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's that? That's Jesus. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the, in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. See, one of the, one of the struggles we're having today politically is that in a nation that's begun to reject the authority of God, we have people that sit in, the, in positions of power and authority without the recognition that they themselves are under authority. And so if you don't believe yourself, if you're in a position of, of, of power and authority, it becomes all the more imperative to recognize and to see yourself as being accountable to something greater than yourself. And if you don't, then it's bound for corruption. Why? Because of what's inside of here, right? This rebellion that just lives inside of us. I lost my, I'll get to slapping this thing here in a minute. Lost my place. Um, and so, so they come to Jesus, and Jesus says this. He says, look, I'm going to ask you a question. Answer me, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And so, so Jesus poses to them a question. He, uh, he doesn't give them an answer. He gives a question. And, and, and the question that he does is, is, is he, he asks um, them, is, is this baptism of John, is John's ministry, is it of God or is it of men? Which is it? And interestingly, remember that in Mark 7, Jesus has already talked to them a little bit about this. He's already had encounters with them. He's had conflicts with the, with the Pharisees and with the Sanhedrin and the people in that. And he said this to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so that's what's been going on here is that, <clears throat> is that, is that versus listening and sitting under the authority of God and recognizing God's right to have and to hold that authority over us, we tend to make up our own rules. We tend to do things like take surveys and as soon as 51% of people are doing X out there, it's now morally okay and right. Because we don't hold to this idea and this, this, this authority that God has. So they ask him, so Jesus asked them specifically about John the Baptist and who he is and what his ministry is. <laughs> and he's trying to focus them back into the very thing that they should have been focused on to begin with was God's word. These are the teachers. These are the, these are the people that are responsible to know this, to understand when they saw all of this begin to unfold around them, they're the ones who should have been helping the people to cue in that the Messiah is here, that he's arrived. So Jesus begins to, to talk to them. And remember, John the Baptist and Jesus have a very unique relationship that actually goes all the way back to the womb. Luke 1.17, 
it's talking again prophetically, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was spoken about John. Matthew 3.10, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Luke chapter 3, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember, John is telling them this. His message is repentance, and repentance is the forerunner to salvation. Salvation isn't possible apart from rep repentance. Repentance is the agreeing with God. It's, it's, the, it's the turning away from the direction that we've went, the rebellion that is in us, and beginning to agree with God and walk with God. And until we're willing to do that, our way will be the highest and the best way. It's not until we agree with that and begin to understand that that we even have a recognition that we would even need a Savior. And so he tells them, you should bear fruit that's in keeping with that. Your life should demonstrate the reality that, that you have repented before God, that you have been saved, you've had an encounter with the, with the creator of the universe, and that should leave us changed. That shouldn't, doesn't mean we're perfect, it doesn't mean we don't make some mistakes, it doesn't mean even that we don't sin, it just means that the trajectory of our life and the focus of our lives and the authority that we're living our lives under has all shifted away from us and our selfishness and onto God and living under his authority and striving to that. Remember last week, this is where this idea too, when Jesus curses the fig tree, it's that same idea that, that he's talking about this, where it's talking about that, that, this, that whatever doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We saw Jesus, again, he looks at a fig tree and a long ways off, it looked good, but when you got up close, there wasn't the fruit on it that should have been on there. And remember, even though it was the not the season for figs, the old growth of that tree should have had what was called a braba crop of figs on it. And there would have been a figs for him to eat. So he cursed the fig. And what he's talking, he's talking to these very folks right here. Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Luke 1, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink 
And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So when Jesus is asking them this question, this question is very much meant to to push them back. See, a question is far superior to an answer. When we get an answer, we just go, oh, okay. But a question does something different. It it forces contemplation. And what Jesus is doing is he's, he's telling them, you need to get back. You need to look into Scripture. You need to look at John the Baptist. You've got to look at his ministry. You've got to look at prophetically what was being said then you need to believe it. But again, they're not seeing this as part of that because because they've allowed the corruption of who they are to feel threatened and to be threatened by both Jesus and John the Baptist. See, Jesus asks all of us questions. As a matter of fact, Jesus asks over 300 questions in the New Testament. There are things like this. Why do you worry about clothes? Why are you so afraid? Have you never read the scriptures? Who do you say that I am? Do you still not understand? Why did you doubt? Do you believe I am able to do this? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Do you want to get well? Just a few of those questions that that Jesus calls for you and I to take and to listen to those and to spend some time in real contemplation of of looking at where we sit and where we're sitting with this and how we're living our lives, how we're we're forming up our lives. Are Are we really living under the authority of God's word in our lives? See, Jesus is challenging them to see and to hear. Jesus makes this statement. He says, you know, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear, let them hear. We all got ears but we don't always have ears to hear. You see, their rebellion was guised in their religion. They disguised their rebellion within their religion, and they believed that their ability to fulfill their religious tenets justified them before a holy and righteous God, and it just doesn't. This was the problem. This was the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. They basically had committed the sin the ultimate sin, which is self-righteousness, to believe that in and of ourselves we could be right before God. See, and they claimed that they didn't have any answer. They went and they had like this huddle. Okay, what do we say? Uh, I don't know. If we say this, he's going to say this. If we say that it was from God, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe? And if we say it was from man, um, the whole crowd believes that John is a, is a prophet and they're going to turn on us. So they go and they say, well, we don't know. So they feign ignorance. When they do really have an answer, they know. I think that their answer is is they think it's of men by their actions. Actions always speak louder than words. So they go and they just feign ignorance and they're like, well, we we don't know. Um, But they do have an answer. And so Jesus just says, okay, if that's the game you're going to play, then I'm not going to tell you either by what authority I do these things. If you can't figure it out by, by, by the ministry, by the things that I've been doing, by what's happened, 
by the prophetic word that's been spoken over this, if you can't figure all of this out by now, who I am and by what authority I'm doing this under, then okay, I'm not going to tell you. And then it says, remember, we go to chapter 12, but that's not like the next day. Remember, there's, there's, uh, there were no chapters originally in any of this. We go to chapter 12, and, and it says that then Jesus, the next thing that he does is he, he speaks this parable. <clears throat> and this parable is all about authority. And it says this, it says, a man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? So Jesus kind of gives this parable to them. And it's all about this, this vineyard. And this, this comes from a very specific place, and they would have known exactly what he was talking about. It's in Isaiah chapter 5. And it says this. It says, let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain, that they not rain upon it. And, and so Jesus begins to, in this questioning of authority, he begins to tell them, I have all authority. And I have all authority over everything. And as a matter of fact, because of the rejection of who I am, because you've rejected me as Messiah, there's going to be consequences for that. And he's foretelling the destruction of the temple, the temple system, and Jerusalem and the exile of the Jewish people because they've rejected him. And in this parable, um, I really, David Gusick in his commentary he said this. He said, heaven only has one message. And, and that's what he's telling them. They, they send a prophet and they, they beat him up. Same message coming from another one. They beat him up too, and same message comes another one. They kill him. Same message. Ultimately, here comes the son with the same message. There's only one message from heaven. Jesus lined it out, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
and no one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say I'm a way. He didn't say I'm, you know, whatever kind of truth you, you know, think of. No, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus then goes on to read this the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting now out of Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, remember, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. What he's pointing back to is the very thing that the people were singing as he made his, his triumphal procession up into Jerusalem. They were singing Hosanna. It's out of this psalm. They're saying, blessed is he who comes to, in the name of the Lord. And he's telling the Pharisees at this point, don't you see, you missed the whole thing. You missed the whole thing because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus has told them, and he's, he said things in his ministry too, like tear down this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. They were saying, you know, what do you think of the temple? It's amazing. And he's like, hey, I'll, I'll tear it down in three days and rebuild it. And, and it says he was talking about his body, but certainly in, in a lot of sense too, he was also really literally talking about the temple and the entire system of the temple, the sacrificial system and all of that stuff of saying, look, there's a new cornerstone that's being laid down. There's a new line that is being laid out there and all of it is gonna be built off of that. It's all built off of Jesus. That a matter of fact, that the whole thing that was there, the whole uh, sacrificial system and all of the things in the order of the temple and all of those things, were really just uh, an indicator of the Messiah and who he would be and what he would do. But now it's, it's done and it's, it's over and he, he's telling them, he's saying, look, you, you missed it. See, the world's always looking for a different message than what Jesus has, but heaven only has one message for the world. In the Bible, we see a lot of different responses to the authority of God. One is the Pharisees, what we're talking about here. And again, they, 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 they began to see him as a threat to their own authority. You see, their agenda and their way of doing things had become so important, and, and, and they were profiting off of this thing, and it was working out so much in their advantage that they were absolutely unyielding when it came to anything else or even being open to really see the scriptures for what they were because they had a predetermined idea of what it ought to be. They believed themselves to be self-righteous because of their religious tenets and their abilities to, to, to do all of these different ceremonies and to, to know God's word even. And sometimes we can be like that here. Sometimes we can believe that we're good because we go to church, but, but church doesn't save you. Jesus does. Now, hopefully church is a place where we come into relationship with, with Jesus. Hopefully church is a place where we're challenged with God's word and all of that, but make no mistake, nobody gets saved by the rock church. They get saved by Jesus. And just coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. The same way as Driving your car doesn't make you a NASCAR driver. You know what I'm saying? 
we become Christians, when we, when we give our lives over to Jesus, when we believe on this work that he's done, and we surrender to the authority that he truly is in our lives. Pilate. Pilate's in the very presence of truth. The embodiment of truth. Jesus doesn't just tell us about the truth. He is the truth. He is this truth that is going through the middle of this entire thing that's holding the whole thing together. He doesn't just tell us about truth. He's holding the whole universe together right now. He is the truth. And Pilate looked at him and said, what is truth? The world looks at Jesus today and says, what is truth or, or what is my truth or what is your truth? It doesn't really matter if there is no truth. My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth, and all roads converge at the end. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach synchronism, that the idea that, that you just believe whatever you want to believe, and at the end of the day, you're going to end up with, uh, in the presence of God. See, truth doesn't operate like that. Truth doesn't operate like that. You can't treat gravity like that, okay? You can't go up on the top of the building and say, I don't believe in gravity and think it'll affect gravity in any way. See, the truth is always exclusive. It doesn't mince or mix with other things. It just is, and it's unchanging. And the truth of gravity is the same here as it is on the moon. Even though the effects of gravity are different, the law of gravity is still just as applicable in exactly the same way because it's related to, um, it's related to mass. And so, so gravity is the same here on the moon and on the other side of the universe, or it's not true at all. And if it's not true at all, we're all in trouble. Herod, Herod looked at Jesus standing in his very presence and just wanted him to do a magic trick for him. Was hopeful that he would just do something cool for him. Just do some kind of a trick. Just, just change this off. He, he, he really had no interest in the authority of Jesus. He believed himself to be the one in authority. And then there was a centurion, a Roman centurion, that, that went to Jesus and requested, Hey, my servant is sick. Will you, will you heal him? And Jesus said, Yeah, I'll come over right now. And he says, no, you don't have to. He says, I'm a man that's, that um, I'm in a position of authority and I know you're, in, all you got to do is say it. He'll be healed. And Jesus said, wow, I've not seen faith like that even in all of Israel. Peter, as much as he struggled, I think, with authority like we do, he was tempted, Jesus, when, when Jesus delivered a difficult teaching about his body and his blood. And a lot of people, it says, a lot of his followers left over it. He says, you gotta, you gotta take part. You gotta, you gotta eat my body and drink my blood. And then with Peter, he said, are you gonna go away too? And Peter's response to that is, where would I go? You have the words of truth. You have the words of life, he says. Where would I go? Where would I even go? I recognize you to be who you are and to have all authority. There's a big contrast at the cross. There's one thief who's mocking him, who is just saying, why don't you just come down off of the cross? And then there's another one who says this, who says, I recognize you to be a king. 
And if you're a king, that means you have a kingdom. And if you have a kingdom, would you even just remember me when you come into that? I recognize, I, see, I know who you are. I'm seeing who you are, that you don't deserve this. And, and you're a king with a kingdom. Would you just remember me? And you see, that's the only way we come. We only come with empty pockets and empty hands, just saying, I've got nothing here. I bring nothing into this. There's, there's nothing about who I am that, that's any, in any way deserving of what this God has done for me. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not worthy to be in his presence. But he told him, you'll be with me there today. I love Alistair Begg. does a really cool sermon on that. And, and it's about him coming to the pearly gates and the guys are saying, well, you know, how, how is it you got here? I, you know, how'd you get here? Who told you you could come? And he says, the guy on the middle cross told me I could come. It's all he had. It's all we have. How about you and I? How do you like the word submission? Do you hate that? It's because we have a negative view of that. It's because our culture has a negative view of submission. We don't understand really what biblical submission looks like. We don't understand the beauty of submission and the harmony of submission. We've lost it. It's become just a negative term for us that means dominated, tapped out, overwhelmed, defeated. But that's not what it means in the Bible. You see, God calls us to submit our wills to him, to submit ourselves and our lives to him. But that submission isn't one that's forced. God's not going to put you in like some kind of a rear chokehold or something and, and make you tap out. This kind of submission is a willingly placing yourself there. It, it, it's a military term, as a matter of fact. And just the same way as a Navy SEAL who submits himself to the authority of his commanding officer is not a weak person. Actually, his strength is brought right into alignment in the very place that it's supposed to be so that he's effective in the means and the way that he's meant to be effective. It's the same way for us, that when we submit ourselves to God, we're actually just agreeing with God. We're bringing our lives and ourselves into harmony with him, and we begin to walk with him in the way that we were always created to walk with him, in harmony, not rebellion. So here's the thing. This is just the reality, is that he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. That's the very nature of lordship in our lives. We're either giving him everything, but we can't call him Lord and hide back the things that, that, that we don't want to give or the, the areas that we want to just hold on to. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We acknowledge you to be who you say you are, that you're the creator of all things, that in you is all power, that you hold all authority. And because you've made and created us in this entire universe, that we have, we have no platform to, to think differently or to, to, to create our own way. Forgive us for doing that. Forgiving us for trying to hold the job of creator and sustainer of the universe. Help us that we might resign from that in our hearts and help us to, to recognize and to understand that the things that you've called us to are for our well-being and they're for life. Help us, Lord, that we might live in the freedom that you purchased for us 
And Lord, help us in those areas in which we're rebellious and we want our own way, that we believe ourselves to just be right. Help us to just yield ourselves to you, Lord, to know your goodness and to know who you are, to, to live not in rebellion to, this, to, to everyone around us, but, but to come for them just the same way you came for us, Lord. So we thank you that, uh, that you didn't live in rebellion like we have, that, that you lived in surrender and submission. And because of that, you've brought life and made life available to us. I was praying for anybody here who, who's never made that, that exchange, who's never recognized the reality of the rebellion that lives deep inside of them. Lord, that, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they, they recognize that and they repent or turn away from that and recognize that, that the path that they've been on, that it hasn't brought anything but really selfish gain and, and selfishness, and it hasn't brought life to them. And Lord, I pray that they would turn to you and they would believe that your work on the cross accomplished the possibility of reconciliation between them and a holy and righteous and perfect God. And so Lord, we're praying today, this might be the day that someone says yes to you. That says, yes, I wanna surrender everything. I wanna make you the Lord of all. You tell me how to live and what to do, Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you died for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.